0: This is an AMI podcast. I'm Chuvita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Some 15 years ago, I had a baffling experience. I was on a committee comprised of both students like myself and university administrators. One student on the committee had a form of cerebral palsy and spoke slowly with frequent pauses. He asked for some accommodations to participate. He wanted more time to to finish making his remarks. His request was met with consternation and outright refusal. Though this student eventually prevailed in securing extra speaking time, I couldn't understand why this had turned into a fight. Extra time isn't complicated to arrange, and it doesn't cost anything. What then was at the heart of this refusal? Years later... I watched the film, The King's Speech, and wondered if the portrayal of a speech impediment might help to challenge the kind of ignorance I had previously encountered. Today, we discuss disability and representations of speech impediments in The King's Speech. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello, and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Javitha Gupta. My guest today is Jared Richmond, who is an associate professor in the Department of English at Colorado College. His essay, The Royal Treatment, Temporality and Technology in the King's Speech, was published in the Disability Studies Quarterly. Jared, welcome to The Pulse. It's really good to have you on the program.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
0: So. Off the top of your essay you talk about how the stuttering society gives this film The King's Speech a huge endorsement and they have a number of print ads lauding the film but you want us to think about the implications of that endorsement why do you feel that this deserves further consideration
1: Well I should you know say off the top that the stuttering foundation you know has done remarkable work throughout its history and you know I can certainly understand why they chose to use the film, The King's Speech, which was released in 2010, to help get their message across. And they had in the past used other high-profile figures who stutter, um, actors in some cases, to sort of bring more attention to the issue of stuttering. But my my interest in the film, and actually with this particular add was the way in which they're highlighting aspects of um, King George III's identity that simply isn't available to most people who stutter, which is to say, you know, he was the king of England and sort of enjoyed certain types of privilege that would, you know, is really unique to him and his own moment in history. And so I wanted to highlight just the ways in which, you know, as well intentioned as the ad campaign was actually created more of a distance between this you know individual this 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 particular person with a disability and then uh, pretty much all of the other people who share his his disability
0: but just setting aside the point about the advertisement for a moment When you think about the film itself, The King's Speech, how accurate was their portrayal of someone dealing with stuttering? Did they manage to touch on a number of the issues, or was there some amount of exaggeration in the interests of making it a compelling film to watch?
1: I think that the, the film is largely compelling because of the struggle it portrays, and I do think that one of the best aspects of the film you know, Tom Hooper as, as director, and then the writer, the screenwriter, David Seidel, is that is they really do provide a view of stuttering from the perspective of the stutterer. And they're, you know, able to, to do that through, I think the uh, camera work is excellent in the film, the way that it, it emphasizes tight shots um, on uh, George VI's face, Bertie's face. Um, I do like that they use the architecture Within the film closed uh, uh, hallways and stairwells, um, internal spaces do suggest a kind of constriction that's felt by people who stutter. And there's also a really impressive attention to the way in which the stutterer and then the hearer, right, his audience mm-hmm. or her audience in whatever case it, it may be, um, interact to one Another, the way in which the stutter, in this case, George six, is very much aware of those who hear him and how perhaps they perceive him. So, in that sense, I think it's an excellent film and it is a portrayal. On the other hand, we have a figure with a disability who's played by an able bodied actor.
0: So what do you think, if you had to sort of analyze the film or look back on it, there's a, a sense that a number of films where we do talk about disability fall into that bucket of inspiration porn, where you have a character with a disability who somehow overcomes their disability. Is that the gist of what's going on in the King's speech, or is there more that's taking place in that film?
1: I think there is more that's taking place, and that's another aspect of the the film that I... I quite like, which is the film really deals with the notion of disability and identity in much better ways than I've seen done previously. And in terms of the way in which you're suggesting, a lot of films that that, that represent disability, you know, offer a, a kind of inspirational theme, these narratives of overcoming. The King's Speech really it it doesn't do that. Now the stakes are much higher. In this film, in the sense that it's set against a kind of geopolitical crisis. And you've got the advent of World War II, the, you know, succession crisis with Edward VIII. But what I like about this film is that at the end of the film, it's the the kind of climactic scene when Bertie or George VI, you know, delivers the, the King's speech or one of many King's speech in the film. He still has a stutter. And he still does stutter. And and there is a moment after the, the final scene where he delivers the speech where Lionel Logue, who plays his therapist, says, he says to Bertie, y- you know, you still stuttered on the W. And Bertie says, well, I had to throw in a couple just so they'd know it was me. And for mm-hmm. me, that's one of the most compelling lines in the film, because it does suggest the way in which for people with disabilities, they are for uh for better or worse, they're tied to their disability by the, the, the society that views them. But in this film, rather than overcoming his speech impediment, he learned how to live with it. And I think that's among the better examples of disability representation I've seen.
0: You touched on this previously, and I'd like to come back to the point about the film's visuals and how the camera really speaks to the communication issues in the film and also some of Bertie's anxieties. In what way does the camera work in the film really lend itself to demonstrating some of the internal struggles that Bertie's dealing with?
1: Sure. Well, I think, you know, first of all, the, the uh, film sort of sets up the technology of the era as being a kind of foil or even a, an adversary for Birdie for the stutter, which is the the microphone, right, as, mm-hmm. as this emblem of radio. As we're talking on the radio now, I'm thinking about this a lot. But, you know, a lot of the, the shots, including the opening sequence of the film, focuses not on the king or, at that time, the prince, but rather it focuses on... A, a microphone, right? So the, 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 there's a sense that early on that the microphone itself is going to, to play a very large role. And then all throughout the film, whenever Bertie is shot, speaking in front of a microphone, and there's a series of, of these, you know, one in a therapy scene with Lionel Logue, another where he's sitting with his father delivering, King George V, delivering a um, Christmas speech. And then there's another moment. Later in the film where Bertie is, is setting up for his coronation, where the director uses the microphone as uh, not just as sort of like a prop or background, but actually will position the microphone in such a way that that, that it frames Bertie's face or obscures his mouth in mm. in uh, such a way that suggests that it's rather than helping him to speak more fluently or be able to communicate right it, it's actually becoming a um, another element another impediment and then there are so many moments in, in this film it's really surprising the majority of of scenes are shot internally there aren't a lot of outdoor scenes in this film mm-hmm. most of them are shot and there's a feeling of constriction oftentimes particularly in the opening scene when the the, the camera adopts a point of view of Bertie as he's moving from the lower levels of Wembley stadium up out into the air and we kind of mm-hmm. feel the constrict- the constriction that i suppose mirrors the constricted or blocked speech that people who stutter experience so i mm-hmm. really like how the visuals of the, of the film um, they really do echo the experience perhaps the the sense um that stutter or feel as they are speaking.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, there's this very common perception within the disability community that technology can be the great equalizer and that it can help to mitigate the impact of a disability on someone's functionality. But as you pointed out, uh, at least for Bertie, the microphone or the presence of the microphone really seems to amplify the problem. So what do you sort of take away from that? in terms of the relationship between uh, a person with a speech impediment specifically and the technology that might be used to mitigate that speech impediment? A microphone and maybe other things as well, if you've thought about them.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there have been in recent years, over the last 20 years, there's been some experimentation at using audio feedback um, uh, to disrupt the manner in which um, stutterers hear themselves or people who stutter hear themselves in order to then generate or allow them to generate fluid speech. And there has been some success uh, with that. But over time, they found that the brain, you know, adapts to those technologies. And I think the microphone, which again, in the film, and maybe more broadly, right, which is sort of touted as this remarkable invention, this sort of, you know, a kind of herald of modernity and for britain right which wants to imagine itself as this modern empire um mm-hmm. and kind of use the wireless and the and, and its radio technology as a way to hold on to its its you know power over its colonies and its imperial possessions and then of course we have this 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 figure who is meant to wield you know his monarchical power through the mechanism of the microphone but Uh, 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 but of course it only heightens his anxiety Mm -hmm. and it only amplifies the idea that that he has a disability. So were he not, you know, in some ways forced to, as his uh, father says, you know, come to grips with this, this piece of technology, right. It'll leave the British monarchy behind. And I think Mm -hmm. that, that, you know, there is this assumption that sort of technology will solve, you know these issues that we have, and I think in this in the in the way that oftentimes disability is, is medicalized, we're looking for a cure and some type of cure that you know technology will solve. But in this particular case, it it serves to only make it worse.
0: There are several instances where this theme comes up in the King's speech as well, where a Birdie is told, "Just take your time." What's the harm in saying to someone, "Just take your time"?
1: Well, as someone who's been told that many, many, many times uh, over my own lifetime, when I encounter folks uh, who are either unfamiliar with speech impediments or with people who stutter, I find it—I—I was both pleased and, of course, um, uh, somewhat troubled to see that uh, portrayed in the film. But what's what's I think so problematic about using that particular phrase when one is speaking with somebody with a stutter or a speech impediment is that, you know, the, the, the phrase is to take your time, meaning that the stutterer should take his or her time. But mm-hmm. I think oftentimes it's what the hearer, me, the hearer actually means is stop taking up my time that there's a, there is a kind of social contract whenever we engage in, uh, you know, verbal discourse. Mm-hmm. And there's a notion that, well, if you're speaking too long or you're taking too long, you're actually wasting my time or you're not meeting these, these socially acceptable criteria. And so when someone says, just take your time, what they're really suggesting is that you're wasting their time. But it also suggests that, you know, the I think the, the use of the possessive your implies that it, it is the problem of the stutterer and that they somehow have to meet the expectations of the hearer of of their society, right, of these of these, um, you know, verbal rituals. But in the end, there really is nothing, you know, you know, as if people who stutter haven't tried to slow their speech, as if they haven't tried to pause. So, you know, these are things that people with vocal disabilities, you know, ha- you know, have heard many, many, many times before. And I don't believe it actually helps, but rather it just highlights that, you know, since, since Heidi is massively impatient for the stutterer to say what it is that, that they want to say. Mm-hmm.
0: And of course, no one seems exempt from those ableist expectations about saying what you have to say fluently and within a certain amount of time. Do you think that it's hinting at a maybe an unconscious bias when it comes to people we expect to see in leadership positions, whether it's a monarch or any other leader? If you have to be a public speaker, the assumption is that you'll be able-bodied in the way in which you you speak to a crowd of people or if you speak over the wireless, what's the film actually alluding to here?
1: Well, I do think that ultimately the film suggests that there is power in fluent speech and there is power in control over the voice. And the suggestion, of course, in the film, but also more broadly, is that someone with a stutter, that there's a failure, that they're unable to control their own body. Right are unable to meet the expectations, so there's you know two ways of looking at it. One is there are these social expectations right, but the other is is that well, someone who can't even control their body right their own corporeal function, how could they possibly right be a good leader and that you know th- the film st- certainly drives that home
0: i'm I'm curious about whether you felt that there is a connection between because the film does talk a lot about Hamlet and, and things of that as well. If if you sort of explore the connection between uh, George the Sixth uh, stuttering and ideas that were prevalent at the time, like childhood trauma or the fear of madness, what sort of a relationship exists, and how likely is it that these ideas uh, remain prevalent today?
1: So this is one of the aspects of the. Uh, film that I find a little bit frustrating, which is to say that it does tend to perpetuate some of the myths about the genesis of stuttering, that is, you know, that it's uh, it's the result of childhood trauma, that it's the result of a kind of psychological condition, when in fact we know that stuttering is rather, it's a, you know, neurological condition, and it, it does have a genetic Component just by sort of you know way of, of comparison. I'm an I'm an identical twin, and my brother and I grew up in the same household. Um, he doesn't have a stutter, but we had the same exact same upbringing. So to think about you know whether or not we you know share some sort of traumatic event. And that's what the the film posits, right? That George the Six was abused as a child that he has a difficult relationship with his father and there's a long history of reading people who stutter as being out of their right minds of being mad Mm. in fact going all the way back even to moses in the old testament all the way through um charles the first and then of course to george the third you know the other king george george uh, the third who well-known, hesitated greatly, as it was said, when he spoke and then lost control of his mental faculties at least twice over his, mm-hmm. over his t- tenure as king. And these attitudes absolutely persist into our current moment. And an excellent example of that is when Joe Biden was running for president in mm-hmm. 2019, his opposition often pointed to his mental infirmities, right? Or, you know, saying uh, unusual things or crazy things. So to me, when I hear those kinds of calls, I hear the same alignment and denigration Mm -hmm. of people who stutter, but it has nothing to to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with notions of sanity.
0: And yet there's this entire industry that's cropped up around a managing stuttering and other speech impediments. And the film is very prominently feature, very prominently features a speech therapist. So, what sort of a relationship does Bertie have with his speech therapist? Is it, a, is it a more equal relationship, or do some of those class distinctions come into play even in the therapy room?
1: The class distinctions certainly come in, into play. When, when Bertie enters the therapy room, the Logue asks, uh Bertie what he should call him and you know uh Bertie lifts all you know his like his six royal names, you know, Albert, etc 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 and then says, you know, your Royal Highness thereafter. And of course Logue who who was Australian, so I suppose he was a colonial, he was a he was a subject of the king, or well at that time of the prince, he says it's better if we're equals. But I think that there is a to a degree there's a kind of myth that happens with regard to speech therapy, this notion that, you know, the therapist and the patient are equals. That's not true, right? That's not true because the therapist um, is there to prescribe. The therapist is there in in some cases to evaluate and judge. And the person who stutters has to follow a program, has to be, examined. So the the kind of medicalization and the pathology of speech impediments, I think, really doesn't allow for equality. And what the film does is really heighten that, right? Because you have, you know, a royal and then you have a British colonial. So on opposite ends of the class spectrum in terms of rank.
0: Do you think the film or a film about stuttering would have done as well in the box office and been received with as much acclaim if its protagonist had been someone other than a monarch? I mean, do you think a story about an ordinary person with a stutter may have done just as well?
1: I think the answer is no, (laughs) largely because, you know, and it's actually hinted at in the film, which is at one point, Birdie says, you know, if I wasn't a royal, then I would just be at home with my family and no one would care. And I think there's a kind of self-consciousness in that that the film recognizes, which is, you know, if this was about a dock worker or a bartender, I don't think the stakes just aren't high enough. But because modern kingship um, and perhaps, as you suggested earlier, sort of modern leadership requires a degree of, of fluency and presentation and performance, which is somehow emblematic of a a certain, particularly like a masculine type of power as it's portrayed in film. Um, I don't think that a film that would highlight the plight of a sort of lower class person or a working class person would have nearly had the same type of success.
0: So then, you know, just in in the few minutes that we have left, we'd be about a minute left on the clock. What do you expect to see from films and their portrayal of stuttering in future?
1: Well, I mean, I'd like to see that, you know, there have been some recent characters on television shows who do have stutters or various speech impediments and their portrayal has been more matter of fact. They're just one other aspect of these characters identities. And I'm hopeful. I'm not sure that we'll see a lead character with a speech impediment. It's possible. Um, But I think, again, we, the kind of polished presentation, particularly in a medium like film or, you know, medium like television, likes to see its its protagonists displaying a type of fluency and a type of verbal ease that is just not a feature for actors with speech impediments. But I'm, I'm hopeful. You know, I do think that in the last few years, we've actually seen a number of, of films that that offer a more realistic portrayal of people with disabilities those um, with hearing impairments. I just Coda is is a recent film that I really am very excited about, and I'd love to see a similar treatment with regard to speech impediments.
0: Jared, thank you very much for speaking to us today.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Jared Richmond is an associate professor in the Department of English at Colorado College. His essay, "The Royal Treatment: Temporality and Technology in the King's Speech." Appeared in the journal Disability Studies Quarterly. That's all the time we have for today. Our technical producer is Nasreen Abdul Majid, and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.